0: Principal Matters Podcast, episode 143. Hi friends, this is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast. Each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your school leadership. This week I want to talk about learning for all with my guest, Dr. Garth Larson. Garth Larson is the president of First Educational Resources based out of Oshkosh, Wisconsin. He previously worked as the K-12 Director of Learning, for the Winnick Community School District in Northeast Wisconsin. He also served as an elementary principal and high school speech teacher and English teacher. Garth earned his doctorate in educational leadership at the University of Wisconsin-Oshkosh, and he sits on the board of directors for ASCD Wisconsin, serves on the K-12 Advisory Council for Education for the University of Wisconsin-Oshkosh, and also serves as an adjunct faculty member educational courses offered through the Dominican University of California, as well as the University of Wisconsin-Oshkosh. He is a very busy man who consults with school districts across the country, provides customized professional development around a variety of school leadership topics. He's also an author of Grading for Impact, co-authored with Tom Herrick, and Collaborative Systems of Support, Learning for All, with co-authors Tom Herrick and Chris Weber. Garth Larson, welcome to Principal Matters. Fill in the gaps on that intro and tell us something else that school leaders may be surprised to know about you.
1: Well, first of all, Will, thanks so much for the invite to come on the podcast. Appreciate the opportunity to share. You know, I think you hit on a variety of the experience I've had. I've had the unique opportunity to kind of see education in the K-12 lens through all different levels from starting out as a, what I often recall, call myself as a recovering high school English teacher to uh, being a, a middle school and secondary assistant principal to the, the moment where district office came to me one day and said, hey, we have a opening at one of our elementary schools. How would you feel about becoming the principal of that building? And you know, my previous experiences with elementary was I went to an elementary school. I maybe observed a little bit in an elementary school in my pre-service, but I uh, really didn't know a whole lot about uh, leading a building at the elementary level, but I love, I love opportunity I jumped right in and became an elementary principal and, and was in a, a couple different districts in that role and, and learned then really what learning looks like from the earliest time when our kids are four years old all the way through the time when they, they graduate from our schools. Uh, something unique and, and interesting about me, I was a collegiate tennis player. And people always say, well, what was the best part of that? Well, every year we'd get to go somewhere over spring break. One year we were playing out in Los Angeles and our team got featured on the Jay Leno show. So we got a chance to meet Jay. Uh, go backstage with him, uh, chat with him. Very, very nice guy, was was a, a lot of fun. Gave us a lot of razzing because we were from Wisconsin, but it was a unique experience that that uh, I'll always hold true to.
0: Oh, I love that story. And of course, uh, if I got to meet Jay Leno, I might ask him about his awesome cars, but that's yeah, absolutely. What, a, what a great opportunity. It, it's also neat, Garth, to hear about your background because as a former teacher and then someone who's served in the roles of assistant principal, principal, At the high school level, all the way down to the elementary level, you have a unique perspective on the K-12 experience. And the first time that I met you was at a national conference in Orlando at AMLE's conference for middle-level educators where you were presenting on grading for impact. And I have to admit, it, it was a presentation that I thought was one of the most powerful presentations that I saw in the time that I was there, because you were talking about your journey into target-based grading. And, and I know that today's theme is learning for all, which is something that you're committed to, but I want to narrow this conversation at the very beginning and ask you to tell us what motivated you as an educator, an experienced educator and an educational leader, what motivates you to transition to target-based grading in your school leadership?
1: Well, I think, Will, the, the lead-in part where you said the focus is on learning for all is really what drove us down this pathway of target-based grading. And so, you know, after, after I had experience as an elementary principal, uh, I had the unique opportunity to become the director of learning in the Winn Community School District. And, and the, the beautiful part about that was that's where my own children attend school. So I think most of us, if we have that opportunity to uh, have a, a wide scope of influence, but also be where your own kids are, that, that's, that's uniquely powerful. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when, when I got into this role, coming out of the elementary uh, principalship and having been you know, in, in a variety of different roles from the K-12 lens, I started to look at our learning structures. I started to look at things like our assessment literacy practices. I started to look at things like creating equitable opportunities for our students. And when, when we really started to break down how we were assessing our learners how we were providing feedback to them, how we were communicating how our learners were doing to the the learner themselves or to their families, I started to realize there were some pretty big inequities that really wasn't leading to learning for all. It was leading to learning for some. And so we started to engage in some of that uh, conversation in our district. And we started to really say, what is our purpose? What is our purpose as an educational system? And it became very clear to us that as we started to go down that pathway around our purpose and that our purpose is to serve high levels of learning for every single kid that walks into our doors, no matter what building they're in, we realized that we needed to change the practice. We we said we believe that all kids can and will learn at high levels, but our practices that we were engaging in actually were preventative of that happening. And so we said, what, what structural changes do we need? And so then we really just started to go down a pathway that I became incredibly engaged in, in terms of what that looks like. You know, i had been in a, in a district where we had implemented previous, several years ago, standards-based learning practices. And so I had that, that work and knowledge of it, but there were some things that we were running into as we were starting to go down that pathway, in particular at the secondary level, that weren't getting us there. We were really... We were trying to manage this whole idea. We're we're in a pretty conservative community. And so as most of your listeners would know that if you're you're an administrator in a a pretty conservative community, how you influence change, how you influence what is familiar to them is a very tricky uh, navigation. And so we started to say, okay, there are certain things that if we know we want our grades to be accurate, honest, reliable, fair, meaningful that there are things that we still need to keep that look on the surface level very familiar to our community. And that's really where the target-based grading came into play. And so when we talk about target-based grading, we're really kind of getting down to four key areas. And there's so many great authors, presenters that I've become colleagues with, that I've become friends with, uh, people that I've put just on a a mountain above in terms of the influence they've had on the the scope of education. So I I became very close with with Ken O'Connor and Tom Guskey and Ann Young and Rick Wormley and Myron Duak and, and all of these great thought leaders. And we started to look at what this could look like.
0: What would you describe as the four keys to target-based grading so that I have a, a kind of an outline in my own mind? And if I'm listening to this, I know listeners often take notes on these conversations too. What are those four keys? And then I want to follow up with a question about your models.
1: Sure. So the four keys, as we kind of broke it down, were the, the first key area of a target based grading system, grading and reporting system, is that formative practice is not counted as a part of any type of the academic achievement score. So anything formative that we're doing, whether that be exit slips, quizzes, practice at the end of the day, otherwise sometimes referred to as homework, which is always a controversial topic that we kind of work through as far as how do we truly make it about practice, that anything that they do that's really about the learning journey, isn't reflected in the end outcome of what we report out. The second key area is the idea of reassessment, which again ties back to that whole idea of learning for all. So in traditional models of assessment grading recording, kids take an assessment, that's their score, you move on to the next thing. In, in this type of a scenario, it, when the kids take the assessment, if they're not yet proficient, they have the opportunity to go through a process of relearning and then be able to demonstrate that they are proficient without penalty, meaning you know what, it's okay that you weren't there this time. We're gonna go through, we're gonna give you a little extra help, but we're gonna get there. And, and what was really evident around the reassessment practices as we worked through it with our community, especially from a leadership lens, was when people say, well, you know, that's not preparing your students for when they go out into the quote real world. And, you know, there's so many cliche examples out there of, of real world examples and how you get a second chance, but ours, ours we kind of took a different approach with that. We said our number one responsibility when our learners are with us is to ensure that they learn. So when we don't allow opportunities for reassessment, essentially what we're telling our students is, you know what, that really wasn't that important. And so that started to shape it because we said our goal is to make sure they learn as much with us so they can be successful when they leave us, that we've equipped them with all that. And when you don't do things like reassessment, all you're doing is creating larger gaps in the learning. Mm -hmm. The third key area is figuring out a way to take on some very important pieces like life skills, employability skills, sometimes what you call characteristics of an effective learner, and have a process to be able to identify those types of things within our students and be able to communicate that out. So often in traditional grading models, you'll see uh, teachers will take and they'll lump a lot of stuff into that grade, including participation, uh, how they interacted with each other, how they were within group settings, collaborative opportunities. And we're saying, look, those are really important. We just don't want to mesh those with how the student is performing in relationship to the academic standards. So we take in, and we separate those out. And then the fourth key area, which we've kind of talked a little bit already, is that when we communicate achievement around a, an academic achievement score, that it's in relationship to proficiency on those targets, not a single score on an assessment or something, you know, the end of a unit. It's taking, breaking down the standards, knowing what we're assessing for learning targets within those and using proficiencies within those targets as the basis for what we communicate out to our students and families.
0: Wow, so let me just touch base on all four of those in summary, guards to make sure that I understand those four keys that you made as a model for your schools. One, that formative practices are just that, they're practices, but they don't count as part of the achievement scores. Two, reassessments and reteaching happen regularly as a part of achieving proficiency, but they're done without penalty, which means that's not a part of your achievement score. Three, you embed processes like life skills and collaboration and teamwork. Again, that's separate from a grade. It's just part of the process, but it's not necessarily something that's reflected in a score. So that four, when you get to an achievement score, you're actually looking at the proficiency that students have achieved. How how does that score reflect the proficiency in that target standard that that student has achieved. Do, do I understand your... That, that is
1: correct. The, the only thing um, to add to that is around those, those life skills, those characteristics of effective learning, we do report those. We just report them separately. So you have an academic achievement score. And, and in particular, as we went through this journey in Winnikani, we actually had three life skill and behavioral scores that we reported in every single class, that goes on the report cards across the district and actually at the high school level that we actually reflect on the transcripts.
0: Wow. That's, that's exciting. So that leads to my second question. And I know this model is going to look different for elementary or middle or high. So let's, and I know you've had experience in all of those. So let's, let's start with your elementary model first. So let's just, first of all, assume the old model. Yeah. So give me a quick snapshot of the old model and then tell me what the new model looks like based on those target-based grading systems?
1: Sure. So at the elementary level, and and there's a variety of different ways, and been fortunate enough to work with a lot of districts through this to try to identify what works best for them because it's always going to be, uh, you know, there's no one size fits all approach to this. But from an elementary lens, typically in the past, what you would see is... And actually, I've seen a lot of elementary schools that still use uh, letter achievement scores on there. They might say English, it might say math, it might say science, and then have a, a letter grade on there. Or, uh, you know, if I go way back <laughs> years ago, you'd see like a, an E X for excellent, an, an S plus or something like that, or S or S minus. There's so many different codes out there that are used. What we've tried to do at the elementary level, because again, part of it is how do we how do we make sure we bring our community along and understanding what we're trying to communicate to them in relationship to how their child's performing? So in this case, we would take and, and you know, depending on the state, in our case, we're, we're in Wisconsin. So our standards are based on the, on the Common Core standards. So we would look at all of our learning targets within each domain of the Common Core. And we would then communicate overall proficiency in relationship to that. So what I mean by that is, so if we look at, the learning targets that are affiliated with reading literature, which is a domain within the Common Core. We look at how our learners are doing within each one of those targets, how proficient they are within each one of those targets, and we'll communicate overall in relationship to that domain, here's where your learner is. And then we would go to informational text. We'd go to writing, speaking, listening. Then we'd take and do the same exact thing for mathematics. So instead of in the past, it would just be reading, writing, math, and a grade... Now, you get to, uh, when you look under math, now we know how, as a parent, I know how my learner is doing in uh, algebraic expressions Mm -hmm. or in geometry or in measurement and data. So, what it's doing is it's giving a little bit more specific information because often when we take and we just combine everything, we don't know exactly what it is that our our learners are doing well or what areas they still have some gaps that that we want to make sure that we address. So, what this does is it kind of starts to break it apart. At the secondary level, that's where it always becomes a little bit more interesting because you can get away, typically in, in, in most districts throughout, you know, really throughout North America, you can get away with having some type of a proficiency score on an elementary report card and, and parents aren't going to say a whole lot and be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yep, they're doing that well. They're, they're kind of doing that well. They're kind of struggling. At the secondary level, in particular, as you transition all the way up into high school, that's where that academic letter becomes uh, such a sticking point. And so as, as we think about it from a leadership lens, it's, again, understanding our community, understanding their expectations, understanding what their communication looks like with post-secondary institutions, that type of thing. And then you have middle school. Middle school is kind of this in-between. And, and I would say about half of the, the middle level that I work with emulate what looks what it looks like at the elementary level. And about half of who I get the opportunity to work with, make it look like the high school. Now, mm-hmm. we made a very conscious decision at the middle school level to make it look like the high school. We said, when our kids come out of eighth grade and go up into the high school level, we want them to understand what this system looks like. We don't want it to be the first time because there are things then like GPA and, and those types of things that could influence college application processes. So the way it works at the secondary level is students receive an academic proficiency score and, and we're a, a three-point district. So if a, if a learner has has met our rigorous expectation for a target, they, they earn a three, which means they're proficient. If they're going in that trajectory on that particular target, but they're not quite there yet, they earn a two. And if they're really struggling, they earn a one, which means we need to make sure we do some, some pretty extensive support for them. When we get to the end of a marking period, let's say it's nine weeks or a semester, whatever it may be. We then look at all of those proficiency scores and, and those proficiency scores then are the basis for how we determine what type of a grade a, a student's going to get within that particular.
0: I can imagine that the transition from the traditional models to these newer models takes a lot of time. And you've already touched on this before, the importance of understanding your community, communicating with your stakeholders in a way that everyone understands and is buying into this new model but just um, in review, it sounds to me like, for instance, in your old elementary model, you might see an A, B, C, or D, or an E, an S+, plus, an S-, minus. but in that new elementary model, you're seeing descriptives of what those domains look like for reading, what those domains look like for mathematics, what those domains might look like for scientific experiment. Mm-hmm. And parents are getting to see specific feedback on where those students are reaching or are growing in proficiency. Sounds like at the secondary level, you tried to build that model a little closer to your GPA model, a little bit closer to that grade point model. So in the traditional model, most of our schools might see that A, B, C, D, and F. Mm-hmm. In your model, you primarily begin with the starting points of a 3, 2, and 1, proficient or near target or below target. And then you've been able to build your grades based on those proficiency target areas. That's... That sounds really exciting, but it also sounds incredibly daunting to think about how do you take a community from a traditional approach to a target-based grading approach? And and for those of you that are listening to this, you can't see that Garth and I are having this talk through video chat and he's laughing as I'm making these comments because Garth has experienced this. And this is where I want to go next in our conversation. Talk a little bit about the aspects of managing that kind of change. And I know we're in a limited setting here. We don't have hours to talk about this and, and Principal Matters listeners, you can get a copy of Dr. Larson's book for the full story, but walk through shortly with us what some of those aspects of change look like and what leaders can expect if they are really interested in walking into an implementation like this when it comes to managing uh, change that, that's so systematically different than what they've done in the past.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I often joke as I give presentations, I put a slide up on the screen of a of a tornado about to hit a high school. And I always I always end as we go through and share some of these strategies and what it can look like is that if you don't evaluate the readiness of the community, the readiness of your staff, if you don't overly communicate, and when I say overly communicate, whatever you think you've communicated in terms of the strategic direction you're trying to go communicated even more. If you don't do that, this entire process to the community will feel like a tornado is coming and taking up your entire school. And so I, I kind of I, that's why I laugh a little bit because it is a daunting task. But what I've also learned is as you go through this and as you start to see, and you can, you can see some of this information in the book, and I know, Will, you've gotten a chance to see a little bit of the outcomes that we saw as a result of making these changes over the course of about four years, we went from, in terms of how our students were performing from a district perspective on state accountability ratings, I believe about four or five years ago, we were around 120 or 130th uh, rated district in the state of Wisconsin. And as the last ratings came out this past October, November, we were second in the state. And I share that because it's all because of the hard work that our staff went through. It's all because we also made a commitment to a process that when sometimes things didn't go as well as we wanted to, we still said, we, we know this is right by kids. We know this is right by our community, but it's going to take us time to get there. So I think one of the biggest things is having a clear understanding of where you want to go. Like at, at the end of this, where do we want to go? And, and we have to have a realistic expectation of when we can get there. And it's also then listening from a leader's perspective, listening to what you're hearing from your teachers, from, you, from your internal stakeholders, first and foremost. Now, here's the reality. You're not going to get everybody on board, and you're not. But you also have to have that, that sense of, of understanding of when do we have enough people that it can start to move that needle a little bit more. And that's when we start to engage in those conversations. And so we had uh, you know, district-level leadership teams, which included teachers from the buildings, we go and we talk to them and we'd say, all right, here's where we are right now. Is this a realistic next step? What, you know, what are we missing? We think we can be there, but you're the boots on the ground every single day. You're hearing from your colleagues. What does that mean? And I think as long as you keep that open dialogue with your staff, you can start to really make some great gain. The other thing is the number one goal as the administrator in this is, and this is what I actually learned uh, from my dissertation process because I actually did my dissertation on an evaluation of uh, standards-based learning practices in Wisconsin high schools, what works and what doesn't. As the building leader, the number one thing you have to do is remove barriers. So when when staff come and say, this is, a, this is a barrier I'm running up running into when trying to do this reassessment, we can't discredit their experience because that is their experience. And instead, we have to work with them to be able to understand that it's a perceived barrier that we're going to help give support to be able to work through. And so I would say it, takes, it does take a lot of hold, hand-holding as we go through because when the resistance comes, it's often not because it's an unwillingness, it's a fear of the unknown. And we have to help kind of collectively go into, for lack of a better analogy, into that dark tunnel with them, holding your hands and, and, and being willing as a, as a leader to say, I don't know what this is all going to look like when it's said and done, but I'm going to be here alongside as we go through this. And I, I do believe, Will, that when I reflect back on my years as a principal, when I reflect back on my five years as, as a director, being vulnerable as a leader is something that, that we don't do enough of. And having that sense of vulnerability to say, you know what, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And we've said that to our staff. You know, they want... Most so often, staff want to see what does the end product look like? And if we're too... If we, if we rush to showing the end product... And it ends up being much different. Then there becomes frustration. So I think it's, it's okay to say, we know this meets our core values of where we want to go. We're going to go through some, we're going to learn a lot, we're going to make some mistakes. And I can't tell you what it's going to look like at the end, but we're going to be there at the end together. And, and that was really the approach that we took. And I, and I truly believe that's why we had investment from our staff because it wasn't just mandated. It was collaboratively worked through. And I think that's the biggest part of that change. Engine.
0: Well, there are so many golden nuggets in that conversation, Garth, and I just want to touch on a few of them for listeners to be thinking about this week in your own leadership, whether you're leading small change or large change, building leaders must remove barriers, real or perceived. Resistance is not always unwillingness, but often fear of the unknown. And a leader's responsibility is to be in the tunnel with his or her team being vulnerable, being transparent. I love that analogy, being in the tunnel together until you find the light. So being able to walk through that process together. Those are such powerful takeaways, Garth. And I know that those are often things that leaders appreciate about the people who've led them through change. But sometimes when we're the ones leading change, it's often difficult to remember how important it is to simply be listening, understanding and evaluating so that we're building consensus together, not mandating it. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on that before we move on?
1: Well, I think I think it's just that. And it always it goes back again to, uh, you know, anytime we run into frustrational experiences or that some of staff start to become resistant to something, that we take the approach that we need to probably then change what our approach is because it's not, it's, it, for whatever reason, it's causing more apprehension than it is causing more consensus for how we want to move forward to better support our learners. And and I do think early on in my career as an administrator, I, I made the mistake of saying this is just the way it should be. Because you think, you know, we know, we know in our minds that it is there, but there's a reason why our staff isn't there yet. And we have to be willing to also recognize that on our part and say, what can we do differently? I, I liken it to as a classroom teacher, you know, sometimes we used to be of the mindset that when a kid didn't learn, what is their fault? And really Once we become more reflective in our practice as a teacher, we say, "Well, what could I have done differently to better support that learner?" I believe the same premises have to go in place as a building leader or as a district leader to say, "Hey, when this isn't when this isn't yielding the outcomes that we've been looking for, what could I have done differently?" Versus kind of point and shame and blame and say it's because of you. Mm. And I think that's one of the most key characteristics of leadership is that reflective practice around us taking a different approach to better support those that we're serving.
0: Well, Principal Matters listeners, I want to highly recommend to you to check out the resources that Garth Larson provides through the first educational resources. And Garth, before we leave today, can you describe a little bit about what that work looks like for you as you serve school leaders across the nation and how listeners can be connected with you for some upcoming events you may be hosting or ways that they can find you online?
1: Absolutely. So again, Will, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to be a part of this. i you know, we could turn this particular conversation into seven hours, but I don't want to put you through that uh, particular uh, time frame. But ultimately, we started first educational resources as a response to some frustration that I had as a building level principal. I would go to different types of professional learning opportunities, and I would feel like there wouldn't be anything I could take away from that and actually better support our staff, which could better support our kids. And so one day I was driving in the car for Milwaukee. Or having a, a phone call with my wife, hands-free, of course, and said, you know what, I'm sick of going to professional learning that doesn't yield the impact that, that I'm looking for to be able to better support. We could do better. And like any good wife, she said, yeah, whatever, you're you're full of it. Uh, we don't know anything about starting a, an educational company. I said, we'll learn. I said it it would be, it would be so opposite of what we try to in you know infuse in our kids of taking risk if we wouldn't be willing to take something like this. So we started just with a single workshop. And, I, and I'll just be honest telling this story because this is, this is quite comical. I was, I was sitting in my office as an elementary principal and I just had a napkin there and it was late, late in the night. And I just said, hey, you know, if we actually start something like this, we just want to do one workshop. What would we be happy with if we start this? And I remember writing, be able to afford to pay for a trip to Disney. And so the listeners that have been to Disney, are like, well, it better have been one really good workshop. But it, it, it really turned out that we had a sense of what the user experience needed in that. And so we started doing some small workshops. And from there, it led to some bigger workshops. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, eight years later, what was meant to just be something small that I was doing to help, help pay for a trip to Disney is now a full-scale organization that, that I'm blessed to be able to run. Uh, we have just over 80 consultants that are working with us in a variety of different capacities. We've been in over, over 1,500 school districts throughout the country. Uh, supporting just whatever they need educationally. We're launching our first book the first week in March, Significant 72, Unleashing the Power of Relationships in Today's Schools by Greg Wilcott, who's an assistant superintendent in the Woodridge, Illinois. Just so many exciting things that we never would have imagined we had. But ultimately, just if you wanna learn more about us, um, if you you check out our website, it's www.firsteducation.org. Dash US.com first is all spelled out. You can see the different events. We have a bunch of our Learning First Institutes with some amazing people coming in this summer. James Nottingham out of the UK, Dr. Tim Elmore, Rick Warmley, Marsha Tate, Myron Dweck, Tammy Heffelbauer, Shiraki Holly, Ken Williams, Leanne Young, uh, Tom Herrick, Lavana Ross. So many great people that we've been able to build a relationship with over the course of the last few years that come in as, as a part of our presenting team. And one of the things that we built our model on is the pillar of, or the three pillars of powerful. So we're looking for impact, affordable. We've really tried very hard to be able to offer world-class experiences at an affordable cost to school districts that maybe won't get those opportunities and sustainable. And that really kind of goes with the affordability. So we give them a sense of what education can and should be. We look at ways to make it so they have access through the affordability side. And then we help them build plans on how you can do that. And so as Will mentioned, there's a variety of different topics out there that we do this on. um, But I just encourage you to check out our website. That will give you a sense of what we're doing. If you have questions at all, I'd love to connect with you on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Larson Garth, L-A-R-S-O-N-G-A-R-T-H. And also I'll just I'll give you my email address on the podcast as well. It's Garth at firsteducation-us.com. And if there's anything that we talked about in this podcast, anything about our journey through the target-based grading and reporting side of things, or just any ways that we can help you grow as a leader and better support kids, we just we love
0: the opportunity. Well, Dr. Garth Larson, thank you so much for being a guest on today's Principal Matters podcast. And listeners, I know that you are always thinking of ways that you can grow and learn and expand so that you can better serve your schools. So Garth, thank you so much for the work that you're doing for educators across the nation. And listeners, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, because what you do matters. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can check out all my posts at williamdparker.com.